Take out a half sheet of paper. Last week, I was quite discouraged. I almost gave up the whole class because there was just no remembrance. But I'm just attributing it to Rick, who did not review enough. See, that's what I'm saying. And Susu knows that. So, we have said from the Heidelberg Catechism, or this is what uh, Matthew Barrett has said, that from the Heidelberg Catechism, we see in the first two two, uh, questions there, uh, the expression of our uh, how why our salvation is as it is. There, there's three elements there he talked about. So let's try to go over that. These three elements will correspond to what you see in Exodus as the outline, basically, uh, because Exodus is a key book of the Old Testament. Maybe one of the greatest books. You could argue. Many do argue that that it because it reveals. God's plan of deliverance for us, for all of us who are his people. So the first point, the first thing to remember or the first thing that we see in the book of Exodus and the first thing that is mentioned in the Heidelberg Confession is our what? Misery. Excellent. See, I've made you miserable enough here. You're finally remembering that one. And so then beyond that misery, though, in those first 12 chapters, what comes along for us? What does God do for his people who are in misery? And in chapter 6, they cry out to God. Or chapter 3, they cry out to God. And what does God give to them? Deliverance. Excellent. And that will take us there on down through chapter, uh, roughly chapter 18. And then, because we were in misery, but God delivered us, then what are we to be? Thankful. Thankful or what's the word in the catechism, remember? Gratitude. Gratitude. So this is the pattern you see in the book of Exodus. This is the pattern we should see in our lives as well. That we were in misery. As Paul puts it in in Ephesians chapter 2, we were without hope and without God in the world. Now, if you don't think that's miserable, you look around at the world today. You look at how people are handling problems. They're miserable. But God delivers us from that. And so... uh, I just realized I need to bring up something else here. Because last week, uh, there was, you did better on your pop quiz. There may be one next week as well on something else. Who knows? Let me see here. I had something else. It's not that. I had a question last week. Does anybody know the question that we had last week? Mm, that's that. Hold on. Here's this. That's what I want. Okay. There was a person in this class who dared to ask a question about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Does anybody remember who the person was? Terrell, do you remember? Okay, you didn't ask. I think think it was Lamont. So, anyway, there was a question asked about that, and we tried to answer that, and I'm not sure that it was... A sufficient answer because she was frowning at me through the whole service. So um, I think what we'll do is go over then a little bit of, 
of this. And what I'm about to share with you here, this is, this is important for us to grasp. Uh, because we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about His election. Uh, we're talking about some of the great doctrines. And what I am going to share with you here, uh, in part, comes, uh, in, in, in good part, comes from uh, uh, Matthew, Michael Barrett, who uh, is, was one of my friends in the university when we were growing up in school and going through university. Uh, I went the way of the Greek language. He went the way of the Hebrew language. And he now teaches at uh, Puritan Reform um, up in the Grand Rapids. Uh, he's written a number of books, has become a scholar of Hebrew in the first right. Anyway, his, his book is uh, called The Gospel of Exodus. Looks like this. I, I commend the book. Uh, Kathy actually finished it before I did because she just got in, involved with this and really enjoyed it. He's written a number of books, but this is one of them. Uh, thoroughly Reformed. Uh, he's with the OPC. Um, so anyway, let's talk about a few things here, first of all, before we get into the rest of the lesson. Hopefully I can move through this rather quickly. All right, so throughout the story of God's deliverance of his people from the bondage of Egypt, God demonstrated that he was Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's Yahweh, the God who is like no other. And in the confrontations with Pharaoh, he demonstrated his sovereignty, his power over all creation through the signs and wonders which we usually call the plagues. Second bullet here, in fact, the Lord stated that he, as Lord, was the one who raised up Pharaoh and thus appointed him to his position of authority in Egypt, as Exodus 9, 16 says to us. But for this purpose, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, Pharaoh wanted his name because he was a god. Well, God says, no, there is a greater God. That's why we have a battle of the gods here. Now, this verse is quoted. This verse from chapter 9, verse 16 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in a section of Scripture that is addressing and teaching that God, as God, has the right and authority to do as he pleases, to show mercy and compassion on whomever he chooses for his own purposes in election. So, let's look at his quote. What shall we say then? Now, he's saying this in response to the statement that he had just made. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I hated. This is what God had said. That's a pretty strong statement, right? So, Paul goes on. Is there injustice on God's part? Have you ever heard anybody say, well, that's not just? Usually you hear it this way. That's not fair. I mean, why would God do that? I'm autonomous. I have a free will. I should do whatever I want to do. All right, well, let's see what Paul says. There, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. May that never be. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does it get any clearer than that? 
Well, John chapter 1, not by the will of man, so on. Not by my blood, not by what I do. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There's the quote. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a hard doctrine, isn't it? But it is the truth coming from God. Now, let's, let's talk further, though. Twenty times in the story of Moses and Pharaoh's confrontations, we find references to hardness of heart. Nineteen of those involve Pharaoh himself. The other time is a word used that includes the Egyptians along with Pharaoh as a people. Uh, Exodus fourteen seventeen for the hardness of the people's hearts. So that, that's one thing. Now, let's, let's break that down a little bit so you see exactly what is happening in this passage. There are three different Hebrew words used to depict hardness of heart uh, in Exodus. The first here is kabeth. You can look, I included the Hebrew here, but you can look at the second word in the parentheses to get what it would look like to you in the English transliteration. The first is kabeth, which appears six times, and there's the six times for it. Uh, we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. The second one is chazak. It appears 12 times in these passages uh, that before us. And then third is the word kasha, showing up twice in the book of Exodus. Now, here's what's important to see. The first of these, kaved, is the word which means heavy. You remember I was emphasizing this week how throughout the whole um, story of Exodus, you have this repetition of this same word because he's heavy of heart, the weighing of his heart. Even the Egyptians, when their people died, they weighed their hearts. So there was a sense in which God was addressing the very thing that they worshipped and, and idealized. So what about your heart? It's heavy. So what did God send upon him? He sent him severe plagues. What does the word severe mean in Hebrew? This is another quiz. It means heavy. Okay, you go back to the Hebrew word, and over and over, you're going to see that word heavy. Because he had a heavy heart. God says, okay, I'm going to lay it on you. I'll give you some more heaviness. You, you like heaviness? So the second word means strong or hard or insensitive. It's a hardened heart, calloused heart. I do a lot of outdoor work. I've got calluses all along that finger from doing certain work that I do with machines, okay? So uh, you, you keep rubbing something a, a certain way, and it gets hard and calloused. His heart has been so insensitive because here, time after time, God says, here, release them. And he doesn't release them. He's just hardening himself. No, no. I said no, and it means I mean no. Then the third word means difficult, cruel, stiff, tough, in a sense of insensitive. Just totally insensitive to what's going on. So God is the subject of action ten times here. Remember the 20 uses. That is, he's taking the action of hardening. Four times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And six times, the heart is simply described as being hard. He's got a hard heart. It's what anybody would observe. 
So we see God at work. We see him at work in all this. But here's the interesting thing. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 34, we see that sin is closely connected to the hardness of the heart. Look at the wording. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Sin hardens the heart. It hardens my heart. I see my heart grow hard at times because of choices and sins that I have in my life. Don't you see that in yours? You don't have to shake your head. No confession time here. I'm not a priest. So we have here a man who is hardening his heart against God, and God sees all that. Now, I mentioned uh, Michael Barrett. He summarizes his conclusions uh, relevant to this understanding of this apparent attention between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in Exodus in his book, The Gospel According to Exodus. But uh, I want to say, as I give you his summation, uh, in the first point, he's going to give two points. The first point, I'm taking his words and, and I'm doing something with them. I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm adding something to it. But it's his point still. I want you to know that. Second point will be actually his quote. So first, God's assurances, his promises, and actions affirm to Moses that God is in control of what is going to happen. The reason why God is saying, I'm hardening his heart. Moses, I want you to know, I am in control. You don't need to worry about what's going to happen because I have a predetermined plan. And so, therefore... He's assuring and affirming Moses in his action. I've got this in hand. Nothing can or will frustrate the plans and will of God. Uh, you can see that Exodus 3, 12 and 19. Notice that God is the subject of the first reference to hardening. So from the start, God says, OK, Moses, I want you to do this. He's going to harden his heart. I'm going to take care of that. You don't have to worry about that. And the final reference to hardening, which is Exodus 14, 17, God's intent in all of this, why did God do this, was to get honor over Pharaoh and his gods because Pharaoh had put himself in the place of God. And he worshiped false gods. And that's, God wanted to demonstrate his unmatched power. You think you've got all these gods and you think you've got all this power. All right, I'm going to bring you down. The second point, and I quote this one, I, uh, the wording is so important. The narrative of hardening of Pharaoh's heart helps to resolve the apparent tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The obvious question is, what did God do to make Pharaoh's heart obstinately su stubborn? And I've emphasized that. The simple answer is what? Nothing. Nothing. He makes this point. The narrative gives no hint that Pharaoh was forced to do anything against his will. There is no evidence that in his heart he wanted to liberate the people, but God would not let him. In hardening his heart, God simply let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. I love that. He let, Pharaoh, he let him be who he was. He did not intervene to make alive his spirit to renew him to come to know God. He says, I don't know God. I don't know this Yahweh. 
Now, let's go from there. Contrary to the opinion, this is, this is startling, of most Americans, man is not basically good. I, I may have shocked a few of you. How many in this room believe that you, you yourself are basically good? Is there anybody in this room? What You, you folks need some self-realization here. You, you, you have some real problems, don't you? Okay, so do I. But, man, uh, look at this survey. This recently came out. In fact, I heard uh, Al recently refer to this survey, and I had seen it as well. 2022, the State of Theology, Ligonier Ministries. 71% of American adults agree with the statement that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. That sweet little baby comes out. The baby's smiling, saying, thank you. Uh, I'm so glad to be born to you. I'm glad to be in this world. What can I do to serve you? Every baby comes out like that, we know. Very sweet child. So, as all my children came out that way. Though, so, look at this, though. Here is, here's the disturbing factor. When the same statement was presented to evangelicals, the statement being there, everyone is, innocent, is born innocent in the eyes of God. When they, all the evangelicals in our country, 65% agreed with the statement. 65% of evangelicals, people who embrace supposedly the gospel. How can they know the gospel? How can they call themselves evangelical if they don't even know that they're sinners from birth? I mean, that's, that's, that's a hard, hard thing to, to swallow there. The question is, therefore, what does God say? Let's talk about what God says. And I'm almost done here with this so we can get into the lesson. But I felt this was important, and Terrell threatened me if I didn't answer the question today. So, what does God say? Every heart to ever beat, save one. Save one. Do you know who that is? Okay. Do I have to take out a half sheet of paper on you again? Save one. Christ, Jesus Christ, God's Son, has been diagnosed by God as desperately wicked or incurably sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. That's the translations you will often see for that verse. That's what your heart is. I, I, I hate for you to come to church and find out that you're like that, incurably sick and desperately wicked. But you are, and I am, Without God. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of, is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What you see in Exodus is Pharaoh storing up wrath for the day of judgment, and it is about to fall. Okay? What I would, what I would say to you is simply this. Realize that God does abandon people to their own desires when they persist. As Romans 1, 25, we mentioned last week, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. 
to dishonorable passions. Fine. This is your, this is your heart. This is your choice to live this way. Pharaoh is not unique in what occurred. It is the condition of every heart in the natural man. We are all inclined. Our, our will is in bondage to sin. We are totally depraved. Have you ever heard that before? Totally depraved. So, what Pharaoh needed, what Pharaoh needed more than anything else was a new heart. But he had that old, hard heart. And here in Ezekiel, here's what God promises under the new covenant. When we come to him by faith, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I'll put within you a new spirit I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I shall be your God that's what God does for us and I trust that's what God has done for each of you Put him on. Fred, do you have any comments to add to what I, I'm, I'm through with that part of the presentation? Uh, I, I should ask first of all, Terrell, are you satisfied now? Okay, okay, okay. Glad to do it. All right, other questions? That was a great question to ask, and it was a very important question. Yeah. How does the remnant back my case up? He always preserves the remnant. Now, what do you want me to back up with the remnant? Well, you said he the heart. Okay, yeah. It, 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 God changes the heart, and you become a part of the remnant. You're not, you know, God from all eternity has chosen us. And not because of anything good seen within us but because of his divine, sovereign will and plan. Okay? Do you, think, do you think Pharaoh was thinking about the remnant? No. I, I can tell you what Pharaoh thought about the remnant. That's the same way the world thinks about us in this room. Uh, the world is no friend to us. Jesus said they hated me, they all hate you. So, you know, that's coming. Is that enough for today? Should we dismiss? Fred, do you have any comments? Or? Now, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
So we should cry out to God for mercy. If we, and if we are in that state of having that heart of stone, we do need to cry out to God. But God has to prompt us. He has to enliven us by his spirit. So we will call out because normally we do this to God. All right, turn to Exodus chapter 11, chapter 12. We call this yet one more plague. That's a direct quote from this passage. Now, let me just give an explanation here, an apology here as we start out. As I'm going through this section, as I was studying all of this, this is one of those things where, where uh, I'm reading through the passage, and it is going back and forth and back and forth. Let, let me just show you a little bit of that and my own thinking and work. When I started reading 11 and 12 to get this picture of what's going on and understand the story, it was almost uh, confusing. Uh, maybe that cluttered. Maybe that's a better word. Not confusing, but cluttered. Because as I'm looking for structure, whenever I come to a passage of Scripture, if I'm going to see the big picture, I need to understand the structure. What I mean by that is what are the bones of the passage? What are the things that are key? What are themes that stand out? What are things that are repeated? So, so the bones are the framing, like a frame of a house. The Scripture will stand upon a certain frame or be set within a frame of a picture, if you want to put it that way. So what's the frame here that's going to hold the story for us? And so I started reading along, and here's what I found in 11 and 12. I started out, and I was reading about the plague. And then suddenly... The Passover comes in the middle of this, and then the plague comes back, and then the Passover comes again, and then there's more plague. It just keeps going like that, back and forth. And I'm thinking, how do you tell this story? I mean, it starts out with a plague, and the plague is announced. It's first announced to Moses, and then it's told to Pharaoh. And so we've we got all kinds of little subplots. So you can build a structure around this, but I felt it was more important for you to get the flow of the story. What is going on? So what I'm going to do is kind of pull all of it together, uh, hopefully in a meaningful way. So what I want is not just simply structure. I must build on the structure, but I want the story, the storyline. What's the themes that are running through here? What do I want to take away from it? You know, you could walk out of here today and say, oh, yeah, that man, he talked about another plague. It was the last plague, and he talked about the Passover. I want you to have more than that. So, therefore, I want you to see this. Here's the storyline. This is the flow of what's actually happening here between the boundaries of the structure. Seeing the big picture. Always keep in mind the big picture of Scripture. And the big picture here, and, and basically, you look at the red up here, and you will see it. Oh, you can't even see the red. I should have. Change the color of that. Can you see that judgment declared? All right. That's basically 1 through 10 of chapter 11, which is all of chapter 11. And then chapter 12 is mercy, mercy received. Judgment declared, mercy received, promise fulfilled. There's your flow. This is what's happening in Exodus. This is what we see in these two chapters. Now we're coming to a head. It's, It's like we're reaching a peak here. We're ready for the release of the people from their bondage. Deliverance is at hand. Judgment also is coming, though. So I I call it this to kind of get us a a, a roadmap. The end of the Lord's patience. 
the end of the Lord's patience. Judgment declared. This is it. You've had your chance. There have been nine plagues. You won't listen. Your heart is hard. So judgment's declared. The beginning of a lasting memorial. There is a remnant. And so God shows mercy. And then the start of a long journey. Because their deliverance was just the start. What were they going to do with that? How was God going to lead them, provide for them? So we find here promise fulfilled. Okay, everybody with me? All right. So let's, let's start and dig into this. I've got 30 minutes. I think we might be able to do it. We'll see. So chapter 10. Chapter 10 ended with an outburst of anger from Pharaoh in the wake of the utter darkness of the ninth plague. Literally, darkness over the face of the earth. You couldn't, couldn't see your hand in front of your face, literally. He says this, get away from me. Take care you never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you will die. This was ugly. Pharaoh had had it. And so had God. And so had Moses. These were to have been the final words in this war of wills between Pharaoh and Moses. But Pharaoh would not have the last word. Notice the second bullet here. The Lord had already spoken to Moses. And in this heated exchange, God prompts Moses to announce yet one more plague. That plague that God himself would bring upon, verse 1, bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. God, God's own hand and person will be in this plague. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst, and he's speaking for God, so the eyes here are God. I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry, I've underlined that, throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. I underline that great cry, the great agony, because this is the same word that you find in chapter 3, verses 7 and 9 of the people of God who were under the slavery of the God Pharaoh and who oppressed them. And they cried out to God. The table is turned. Now it's time for judgment. You know, it's, it's one thing for Pharaoh to continue to resist and reject the words of an 80-year-old slave who says that he speaks for God. But what happens when this man must now come face to face with the true and living God? The day of reckoning has come. Some at this point would point a finger uh, pointed a finger at God. God's pointing a finger, and they're pointing a finger back, accusing God of cruelty here. Senseless deaths of the firstborn. How could God ever do that to the firstborns? They did nothing. They're innocent. Wait, wait a minute. Well, we've already talked about that. Okay. But had not Pharaoh put to death and put a death sentence on the Hebrew children earlier, the, the firstborn there? 
And furthermore, this judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt must be read in light of something that had been said earlier in Exodus chapter 4. Look at this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. He's been serving you. I want him to serve me. He's my firstborn son. Pharaoh, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You've got my son hostage. Let him go. I will kill your firstborn son. But Pharaoh refused to heed the warning then. Chapter 5, verse 2, hardened his heart, refused. And, and, and he will continue to do so now. Moses would return to appeal again and again over those chapters 7 through 10. And Pharaoh continued to harden his heart even in the face of plague after plague. And even after the pleadings of his own servants, chapter 9, verse 20, the whole land's going to be ruined. Why don't you let these people go? And some of his people are actually beginning to turn to God. But here is the end of the line for Pharaoh and his obstinacy. God is about to unleash the final blow, the deadly plague that will claim the lives of every firstborn. Moses says that Pharaoh's servants, he says, here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. This is how it's going to play out. Verse 8, if you're looking in the scriptures, he says, your servants are going to come down to me, to Moses, and bow and beg for us to leave. I can see Pharaoh laughing at that. It doesn't say so, but I can see him doing that because his heart is hard, insensitive. He only cares about himself. And Moses adds this, and after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Hmm. What do you think about that? What, what do you make of Moses' anger? I mean, should we be angry? Shouldn't we be broken? Why is he so angry? That's, that's very good, very good. Pharaoh has caused it to come to this point. I think two things here are in play. First is what we've said here. Moses, after all these plagues, and it's been somewhere between six and nine months is what scholars tell us, that this has been going on. And at this point, he is so, Moses is frustrated, angry, that Moses is like this, and it's going to cost so many lives. But why, why is that? Because I think the second side of this is Moses was told by God, you are God to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sees what God's reaction is through Moses. That God is angry, very angry, that Pharaoh would destroy his own people for the sake of his own image. So this is, this is a, a very dramatic thing here, uh, and a very dramatic exit. This, this would be a great cinema, cinematography right here of him 
running out on Pharaoh with a hot, hot head. He didn't even give Pharaoh a chance here to respond. He just, he just leaves. Pharaoh, uh, Moses is gone, and judgment is about to fall. And it's about to fall, verse 8 says, on all. But now wait a minute. All here doesn't mean all. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. So we move through this. Here's, here's the announcement of the judgment. So the judgment is going to come. But there is also the beginning of a lasting memorial because mercy is being granted and received here. So along with this announcement of judgment came this promise of mercy. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Uh, there's that word distinction. Does anybody remember what that means? I have not given enough pop quizzes. Now, this is a word which means redemption, deliverance. Okay? So God made a distinction because they're, these are his people. He, he is redeeming them from bondage. And he makes a distinction here. So he is going to protect and sustain them. Uh, this uh, distinction, by the way, has already been seen in three other passages that I have listed there for you in the second bullet. But this time, Israel must make a choice to act upon God's commands uh, that he commands to do by faith. So faith is going to be involved here because they're going to be told to do something that sounds rather strange. But they must do that by faith, trusting God, believing God will keep his word. So here's what happens. In, in chapter 12, God will explain then to Moses and Moses then to the people how they and their family can be spared from the wrath of God. And what was about to happen that night would be something that would be memorialized as well as celebrated forever. This was so important, in fact, and so central to these people that they would be asked to change their calendars. I want you to move the start of your year. Mark this as the first month of your year. This is a new beginning for you. You know, we look like, you know, we look at January as a fresh start, and we make all kinds of promises and all kinds of commitments to do things. And by January 17th, it's usually over. But nevertheless, here God says, here's something I want you to remember. I want you to memorialize and celebrate this forever of my mercy and grace. You see that chapter 12, verse 2. So, here was what God would require of these people. This is what they must do to keep safe from death. There would have to be, don't miss this, there would have to be a substitutionary death. There had to be a substitutionary death. There's death all over the land. There would have to be death for each one of God's people. So let's look at the checklist that Moses gives to the people. Look at it rapidly. Get your Bible open. Uh, if you already don't have it open, follow along here because I'm going to move right through these. Number one is verse three. A lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the month 
and taken for each family. Now, if your family wasn't very large, you could combine families and come under the same roof and celebrate. But so there was there was uh, certainly the, the option for that. Verse five, the lamb that had been taken on the 10th must be without blemish, a yearling. And to ensure this, the lamb was chosen ahead of time so it could be kept. That's one of the words here. Keep this. Though they had it for four days. Why did they keep it for four days? So that they could watch and be sure there was no blemish. It had to be a perfect lamb for God. A perfect lamb. Verse 6. On the 14th day of the month, the lamb was to be killed. Killed at a specific time. It says in the scripture there, at twilight, literally between the evenings. Now, the, the terms in Hebrew refer to when the sun starts this setting, and then when the, the second one would be at darkness, when darkness then covered. The sun is totally down. The Jewish people throughout their history, Old Testament, New Testament, this, this moved in and there was a set time. And this is when they would offer between the evenings, which was between 3 and uh, 6, between 3 and 6. So that's when the, the, uh, the sacrifices were made. This is when this was to be done. Anybody else know something about 3 o'clock and a lamb? It's when Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, the Lamb of God. More about that later. I, I'm getting chills as I think about it. I, I was, reading this whole thing, it was like, wow, what a picture. This is the picture that you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, uh, verse 7. A hyssop branch, then, after killing the lamb that was perfect, a hyssop branch was to be dipped in the blood of the lamb and that blood would be marking the lintel the cross beam over top of your door there's a lintel back there here here's lintels up here you got the lintel and then you got the doorpost so that there would be blood over the entrance there of the doors verse 8 there was to be a meal that night roasted lamb sounds pretty good unleavened bread not bad Bitter herbs, why? Well, this was a reminder. This is a reminder of the bitter sufferings that they endured, and it served as a lesson. We'll see that in a moment. Verse 10. Nothing was to be left until morning. All the lamb had to be consumed or burned. Uh, in this way, the meal would not be desecrated, and no one unworthily could come to the table and eat. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 11. And they were to eat this meal dressed and ready to travel with belt fastened, sandals on their feet, walking stick in hand, for there would be a hasty departure. And the event had a special name, verse 11 tells us. It is the Lord's Passover. This is what God has done, is doing to deliver you. Now, why this particular name? 
What's the significance of this event? Verses 12 and 13 say this. It's there for you on, on the screen. And I want you to note, and I have circled all the I's in this. Single letter I, I, I. For I, and then the other word I'm going to underline in this passage is pass. Pass through, pass over. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Let's stop right there because I put a little parenthesis here, didn't I? You see, this right here, what he says is so dramatic. This is the major point here. I'm going to pass through the land. I'm going to strike the firstborn, man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I'm going to execute judgment. Signed, Yahweh. This is his signature. I am the Lord. This goes back to chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where over and over he emphasized, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, three times, I think, in that section. And so he is telling Pharaoh, who said, Who is the Lord? Who's the Lord? I don't know him. Here's what I'm going to do. And I just want you to know, I'm signing it. I am the Lord. This was a, an in-your-face kind of thing to a man who had obstinately rejected God. Now, Moses delivered the message to the elders then. Verses 21 to 27. Again, you have that. Remember the structure where I said it goes back and forth, back and forth? Now we see him telling the elders all the things that we have just read and talked about there. And you can read it for yourself. But, but there's something I want you to note in it. In generations to come, this was to become a memorial day. Verse 14, a memorial day. We have memorial days, right, in, in America on our calendar. He said, as a Christian, here's your memorial day. Or as I should say with the old, I can say Christians in advance. But this is God's people. This is God's people's memorial day. A statute, a rule, a requirement to be observed, verse 24, forever. Never, ever forget that day. You forget that day and you lose everything in effect. You know, if we take our eyes off of Christ, his death, our salvation through that, if we ever take our eyes off of him, this is, this is why the table is so important. This is why our feast, our memorial, is so important every Sunday. I've had people who've asked me about, uh, you know, okay, so you've, you've gone over to the Presbyterian Church. Uh, you celebrate that the feast of the Lord's table every week? Doesn't that get boring? I've had people say that. And I said to them, does your salvation ever get boring? Does it ever get boring to you that Jesus died for you, saved you, redeemed you, and you did nothing for it except bring your sin? No, it doesn't get boring. In many ways, it's, it's, it's the high point of the service. 
Uh, what, what does Dennis say? This is God's exclamation point or this is his amen to the sermon? Okay, where am I? I? I got off. I'm sorry. I was preaching. So they were to remember and celebrate. They were to teach their children what God had done to save them. Look at verse 26. This is so important because I, I see Christian families many times. They kind of, well, I'm going to let my children make decision for themselves. Well, it's true. You can't make decisions for your children. But what you can do is you can pray and you can teach and, and you can work with them and, and tell them what Moses says here. Look, verse 27. Tell the children, last bullet, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. It's what the Lord has done. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. He delivered us. Well, how did they do how did we get deliverance? Well, there was blood. A lamb had to die. And that lamb died. And we were under that blood. And God passed over us. Okay, so I've still got six minutes here and I've got a few more things to talk about, but I'm gonna to go to meddling. Stop teaching and preaching. Go to meddling here. How do you highlight and celebrate God's mercy and grace in your home? What do your children see and hear from you? I will tell you as a man of 72 years old with three children, 14 grandchildren, one of the strongest legacies you can leave your children and grandchildren is the memory of a godly and grateful life to God. It's not how much you've left in the bank. It's not how many special possessions you've accumulated over the years. Those things can be important. I understand that. I'm not saying you just throw all that to the wind. But what I am saying is the most important thing you can do right now is to ingrain in your children. I'll use, I'll use this word. You need to brainwash your children in truth. You need to teach them the truth over and over and over. And you need to use special times for that, like our communion service, the Lord's table. Talk about that. Tell them about that, why they are doing that. They should be asking, why did you do that? Why did you sing this? Why did you answer those questions? If you don't know those answer, uh, questions, uh, answers to those questions, you need to find the answers to those questions. We come up on a time of Thanksgiving. Okay, that's an American holiday. Fine. Let's use it as a time to talk about thanks to God and what he has done. We come upon Christmas. Christmas has been so secularized. And I'm disheartened to, to see the secularization of it all. And yet at the same time, it does mark one of the crucial moments that is recognized in the world. And I, I realize Jesus may not have been born at Christmas. <gasps> But maybe he was. There's debate about the time of the birth by scholars. But it's a time we recognize that. This is a time for us to be able to highlight one of the key factors. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the session of his time for us. So these, these four things are critical. So we're coming up on one of those times. Sing great 
Christmas songs, not just jingle bells. Sing some songs that have meat to them. And sing those for fun too. Fine, but, but let's be sure we're putting into our kids a culture of Christianity. Let's be sure we're teaching them God's truth here. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. That, that was enough of that. That was about a minute and a half, so I, I owe you. So I want you to notice how the people responded. When they heard about this and they heard they were supposed to teach their children and, and what wonderful thing God was doing, notice how they responded. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Does that seem a little bit redundant to you? By the way, some translations, I won't mention them, but some translations just put one of those expressions in there because they're, they're being dynamic and they're just trying to consolidate. It's saying the same thing. Why does it need to be repeated? Well, why did God repeat it? He wanted you to get it. They did it. I said they did it. <laughs> they did it exactly. God's command was met by this act of faith. That is, they were taking God at his word. They trusted that what he said he would do reminds me of what I read of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, but that's an aside. So they acted on his word. They obeyed as a sign of genuine faith that God would keep his word. Hebrews 11. Here's our confirmation. Talking about Moses. By faith, he, Moses, and all those there, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith. We come by faith the same way. They believe God. They obey God. They worship God. Is that any different than each of us who who are to respond to God's mercy and grace. To believe means to listen intently and to trust His Word to be true. To obey is doing what He has commanded for us to do. To worship is to gratefully and joyfully remember His mercy and His grace to us. So as even we go to the next service here in just a few moments, this is our privilege. We have believed. I trust we have been obedient And yet, have we obeyed in all things? No, but we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. So we confess our sins to God. So then we can worship him truly, faithfully, in spirit and in truth. Okay, I'm going to stop there. There's only one minute or so left. Uh, Here's the can of worms. Uh, Any questions? Terrell, do you have any questions? Okay. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you. Uh, yeah, I did, really, but anybody else? Good to see you girls back. Right. Any other questions about today and what we had? Debbie. Deborah. Deborah. Of what chapter? Twelve. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that's in the lesson today, but I didn't get to it. All right. Look, you see that verse right quick? Um, this, is, this is, let me see if it's coming right up. Um, mm, no. 
Um, I might steal my thunder, but I'll go ahead and steal it. This is amazing. Uh, Pharaoh, three times. Get up. Get out. Be gone. I, I, I'm, I've had it with all of you. And blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and then he says, oh, and bless me also. What does he want? Relief from the plague. Just as he's done every single time. Bless me also. And, and if you come back next week, I'll, I'll talk to you about the blessing that Moses could have prayed for Pharaoh. Would you be interested in hearing that? What he, what he could have prayed? And been a, been a really good prayer. Father, thank you for this, these moments we've shared together. Thank you for these people taking their time to sit here. I, I pray they have benefited. Most of all, I pray that we will see that there is a God who loved us, who gave his son for us, who took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, that we might believe, that we might know deliverance from the judgment of God and experience his mercy. And so we go to worship you now in this next service, and I pray that we will rejoice in all that you've done for our deliverance and salvation. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.